You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. I'm Jamie Dumont. I'm Rob Russo. And this is The The Fabulous Fabulous Invalid. Uh, hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. Well, here we are, back again at the lovely Orso restaurant, yes. this time on a Sunday night. Yes. Not our normal Monday. Sunday at Orso. <laughs> okay, that, the, the, it was, the commitment was good at the beginning, and then you, you waned a little have, bit. I didn't, you didn't have the words. I didn't have the words. Yeah, I, I, didn't I, have I the get words. that. that that's words. fine. But we are delighted to be back at Orso. It's actually yes. really busy, considering it's just about 6 o'clock. Yeah, well, all the, all the matinees have gotten out, so folks are piling in. They have, We saw a matinee Piling today. or filing? I uh, Pick your poison. We did. Yes. We saw a matinee today, um, which was a lot of fun. A new play called Continuity. Very funny. Uh, at uh, City Center, Manhattan Theater Club production. Really superb. Yeah. I loved it. Great. Really I loved go, it. Go as, check it out. As yeah. Rob said, it was like part epic proportions and part, what was the other Noises play? off. Noises off, You know, yes. it's like you put them together and add a very important message about climate change. Um, and you've got continuity. Speaking of theater. Yes. Last night we did something that was really kind of, I want to almost go in as bold and say life-changing wow. for me. Wow. We went to Brooklyn to see an immersive, off-off-Broadway production of Streetcar Named Desire. Yes. At a, not a theater. It was really like a raw space. Yeah, or a, it's, a, a, it's a music, like, event art space that they, you know, rent out for various, um, you know, events and such. And it was like... Called 50, Mr. Rogers, yeah. 50 people, folding chairs, mm-hmm. and we sat around, basically, in the living room of... <laughs> Of the Kowalskis. Yeah, Stella and uh, Stanley. And it, it not only was it a brilliant production, and I think when this airs, it will only have one weekend of performances. Right, sadly. Going, yeah. so if you can go, go. It's well worth it. But what was so life-changing for me was just that reminder that there is such great, exciting, experimental, and wonderful theater all over this city. Yes. It's not just in these 12 blocks mm-hmm. or downtown. It's everywhere. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And you need to really look for it yeah. and, and discover it. Yeah. Um, but when I can, when I have the time, I really love try, you know, trying to see something that's a little off the beaten path like this production of Street Car Neighbor Desire, which you haven't mentioned, um, makes history as the first production to ever uh, have a genderqueer actor playing Blanche Dubois. Well, I saved that part for you because yes, I knew oh, I would boggle gender queer and get <laughs> it wrong. Um, yeah, so the, the, the Williams estate um, approved this casting decision, um, which is you know quite exciting. And and, w- and what's the payoff amazing, though, was great. The payoff was 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 absolutely uh, just stunning, and uh, it totally destroyed me in the end. Uh, and that play does you know uh, by itself, but um, the way it's performed. Um, in the end, it really, really all comes together. There were moments where I felt like I needed to excuse myself and let them have their privacy. That's <laughs> right? how intimate yes. it really was. Yes. And, and, and that was the point, right. obviously. Right, and this production itself is, you know, I, I, I used the, the word uncensored in my review because it, there are two very explicit scenes um, that are, you know, sort of there on the page, but as directed and performed by these actors, you know, it required the use of an intimacy coordinator um, and, you know, we're feet from two very naked actors in a very... I was okay with that. Oh, no, I, mean, I wasn't complaining, but... We were actually the only two people looking at Stanley. Everybody else was averting their eyes. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but yes. Um, <laughs> you know, but it really, it, it, it sort of ups the ante and it grounds the reality of the piece. Absolutely. Such that you really, you, you forget you're watching a play, and that is what a the highest compliment you could probably ever give to any piece of theater, that you're so lost in it that you forget that you're, in fact, watching people pretend to be other people and say words that were written for them um, that they do eight times a week, you know? I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you for coming. I hope I keep getting these invites to these strange and (laughs) unusual places that you take me. uh, Crown Heights, Crown Heights. (laughs) Yeah, it really really was. Uh, I think we're we're really uh, showing our our Manhattan snobbery, aren't we? <laughs> Why we would dare to go to Brooklyn? It's, oh, know, I didn't mean it like so that. If that's how it came off, right. that, I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> no, no, no. Anyway, um, shall we uh, get to our guest? Sure. Wait, am I supposed to say something better? I don't know. <laughs> sure. Let the bells ring, ding dong. 
sting if you're a viper. Each night at the Walter Kerr Theater, Andre De Shields glides onto the stage and stares down the audience with a thrilling command like no other performer on Broadway can. With a 50-year career that includes such seminal shows as The Wiz, Ain't Misbehavin', and his Tony-nominated turns in Play On, The Full Monty, and now Town, we are honored to welcome the singular and fabulous Andre De Shields. Thank you. Thank you. It's lovely to see you. It's a real honor to be sitting at Orso with you, I must say. It really it's is. to be seen, you know? That's it. It is. Consider the alternative. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and seen you are. Eight, eight times a week on eight stage at the Walter week. Kerr. Eight times a week at the cozy Walter Kerr. Yeah. Cozy? Cozy, yeah. It's compact. Yeah. It's intimate. And... Bruce Springsteen was kind enough to leave a very friendly ghost there. That's good. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Two very heady bookings in that theater. Yes. Springsteen for a year and you guys for hopefully a very, very long time. For a very long time, yes. But there, there are reasons for that, I think. Cultural reasons, social reasons, economic reasons. When you listen to the news today... One of the first leads, because of the crises around the world that's happening in churches and temples and mosques, one of the first leads is we are advised to avoid places of worship. Now, I find that very disconcerting, very odd, that in order to live our best lives, we have to avoid places of worship. However, what it makes very clear to me, a performing artist, is that the last place of worship is the theater. Couldn't agree with that more. This is where it is still safe to go for strangers to congregate, sit in the dark, and not be concerned about physical safety. They might have concern about emotional or mental safety. <laughs> but if I may get back to how you introduced this conversation, when my character Hermes enters the stage, and many people have asked me, what are you doing? What's on your mind? And I explain it this way. As the storyteller, it's my responsibility to make a contract with the audience, which is why I'm wearing that butterface. We hope you have come with no expectations. And the contract that we make with the audience is this. Come with us on this journey. You may be challenged. We hope you will be changed. We promise that you will not be harmed. <laughs> and that's the response from the audience. They laugh, they smile, sometimes the shout of joy, and then we start the journey. And then they're hooked in, right? Then you have them. That's what I'm saying. Then they immediately lean yep. forward because we've established that moment of trust. And they say, we're yours. And that happens every performance, right? That, it happens... That works every time. That works every time with different kinds of agency. For instance, early in uh, the um, previews, we were performing for hardcore Aeneas Mitchell <laughs> audiences, people who had wo already worn out the double vinyl album right. that came out in 2010. So just from that boisterous beginning of the show where, we, where it seems that the, the set explodes onto the stage. There was joyous screaming and it, and it exacerbated as each member of the ensemble came out. And then when the offer to come with us was finally made, it was as if the roof went off the building. 
now we know we're performing to a, 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 a comprehensive audience of people who have some information about the show, but mainly people who have heard that they need to see Hades Town. So they allow the mystery to happen. Because they don't quite know what they're getting exactly. into. Exactly. Right. Which is why I mentioned that idea about the contract. But once they know they're in a safe place, they, don't, they can let their guards down, they can be vulnerable, that we're going to chaperone them, that we're going to take care of them. Everything is cool. And that's really one of your, one of your functions, right? Is to continue to be that chaperone through the entire journey. Yes, it is the function of Hermes to be the chaperone of those individuals who are going to take the journey. Now, they don't know that they're going to visit the, the land of the shades. <laughs> Although Town, the title should give you some idea that it's going to be, in some moments, an unearthly experience. Everybody hungry, everybody tired, everybody slain for the sweat of his brow. The way is nothing and the work is hard, it's a graveyard in Hades Town. go to Hades Town, there's still enough trust in the contract that we've made that no one runs away because by then they want to know how this Greek myth that many of them know how, the result of, how is it going to change in this storytelling? So yeah, it's a lovely experience. The audience, when, when we look from the stage into the audience, and we're always talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, we look at the audience and we see it literally represented. The audience is intergenerational, the audience is multicultural, the audience is ethnically diverse, and the play, in all of its contradictions and thorns, remains family-friendly. Families are coming with small children, and it's, this is gonna sound corny, but it's a love fest. We in the ensemble are loving on each other. We are loving on the audience. The audience is loving on us. And it makes it possible for communion, which is what happens at the end of the show with the passing of the cup. And that's why I began this conversation with that commentary on the crises around the world because there are very few opportunities and very few spaces where we can have communion, which is so important to being a part of humankind, humanity. Because it teaches us how to be better to one another, correct? It teaches in this crazy world, it helps remind everyone that we are in all this, we are in this together. Together. And that's how, that's how we'll get through it. Yeah, through thick and thin, we're in it together. And it also teaches us, because there aren't many examples of this in the current world, it teaches us epic empathy. Epic empathy, that's yeah. beautifully put. Oh, it's good. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. It is good. Because it's a combination not only of kindness, which sounds a little cliche these days, Compassion has to do with compassion. It has to do with responsibility for one another. And it also teaches us the lesson that the only way you can be 
kind to another person, compassionate with another person, empathetic with another individual, is you first have to be that with yourself. And that's what's missing from the equation. Hmm. Well, it's amazing. You know, the show is so vivid and boisterous, and yet also so delicate and so exquisitely crafted as you're describing it. I'm, you know, getting chills just thinking about my own experience seeing it and the creation of community and the trust between the audience and the the emotional investment and the taking that journey together. This is also a show that has itself taken quite a journey to get get here. Yes, indeed. uh, Over more than a decade, right? Uh, I'm wondering if you could share with us how you came to be involved in Hades Town and what that experience has been in its various iterations. This is probably going to be news for most people. (laughs) But I was the first Hermes in November 2012 at the Second Stage Theater, Anais Mitchell did her first workshop. I'm not saying that it's the first musical iteration because there was that album, there was that silver school bus that they traveled around (laughs) as if they were troubadours. But the first (laughs) attempt to do a theatrical iteration was 2012. And that ensemble of individuals have gone their separate ways because that's the nature of this business. There are no guarantees, right? right? But when I played Hermes in 2012, I infected him with my DNA. (laughs) (laughs) And I also planted a boomerang. The idea being, Hermes, you belong to me. I'll be patient until you turn around and come back in my direction. It took seven years. It took other iterations of the New York Theatre Workshop, the Citadel in Edmonton. But when the universe knew before we did that there was something inevitable about the journey that Hades Town was on, Aeneas remembered Andre de Shields, introduced him to Rachel Chafkin, and the rest is now becoming history. People are always asking me, was this written for you? I said, no, it wasn't written for me. Well, it fits you like a glove. And then that's when I volunteer. Well, that's because I put my own personal CRISPR in it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just answered, I think, very beautifully the next question we had for you, which was... Ask it anyway. I'm going to. (laughs) Which which is, how much of Hermes is Andre and how much of Andre is Hermes? And and you already said that you really injected your DNA into this character and into this part from the very beginning. So I would have to imagine that that still holds true. It still holds true, but Jamie, you know, Hermes, as a god, as a messenger to the gods, as part of the Greek mythology, was before Andre de Shields. Right. Okay. So what we need to know about Hermes is what I do best. And now I explain that because... I speak beautifully, Hermes must speak beautifully. And because I move beautifully, Hermes must move beautifully. And because it is part of my politics that beauty is as necessary as breathing, as making a living wage, then that must be necessary to Hermes. Because there is an idea in the world now of men with feathers on their feet. For your listeners, this might sound like a stretch, but I think if you just work the metaphor a little bit, you'll know what I'm, what I'm saying. 
So in order to in order to make a home for that metaphor, then Hermes has to be really a facet of the diamond Andre de Shields. And as you mentioned, the shows that I've been noticed for, you will see in Hermes a bit of the whiz. You will see in Hermes a bit of the viper from Ain't Misbehaven. You will see in Hermes a bit of Jester from The Full Monty. Oh, sorry, my mistake, my bad. Jester from Play On, which was my first Tony nomination. You will see in Hermes a bit of Horse, which was the second nomination from The Full Monty. Yeah. Well, all of the all of the characters you just mentioned are all incredibly powerful people. Hugely so. So there has to be a through line. And the through line is, I like your recognizing them as powerful people, but the through line is they're outliers. Right. Mm. Right. And her, if Hermes is anything, <laughs> yeah. he's an outlier. Which is why he can work so effectively as the storyteller. Right. Yeah. It's like he's playing chess with everyone. Well, thank you very much, because not only is Hermes the messenger to the gods, Hermes is a trickster. Yes. Not only is Hermes the storyteller, Hermes is a shapeshifter. Absolutely. So that, so that he can work in this capacity of finding the next Orpheus. Right. Not unlike the Wiz, not unlike the Viper, not, not unlike, unlike Jester, Jester's, all of them. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's, it's, um, it's really quite interesting when you put them all together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, there's one common denominator. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's a revelation. As a, it's not a plan of mine. It's a revelation. It's a could be a plan of some it's force. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. there's, you know, there's an argument. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. an argument yeah. to be made that yeah. things are aligning beyond your For control to I bring you these that. roles. I believe that. Yeah. People ask me, Andre, how do you do it? I say, I live an anointed life. Yeah. I have understood for a long time that I, I'm not in control. I'm a passenger. When did you realize that? When I became an adult. But when I talked to my older siblings and my and authority figures in my life, they point to that, my having possessed that kind of agency when I was a young man. I was told that my nickname as a young boy was Professor. <laughs> because I would speak preternaturally, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, I am who I am today because of my mother and my father. Now, that may sound simplistic. But what I'm saying is, when I was old enough to have an adult conversation with my parents, each of them revealed to me on separate occasions that what they wanted to do with their lives was to be a performer. My mother wanted to be a dancer. My father wanted to be a singer. But their parents, who were born in the late 1900s, said, no, my daughter is not going to shuffle her way through life. My son is not going to have such an insecure career as a singer when he has to bring bacon home to the family, that kind <laughs> right. of thing. So I'm the result of those deferred dreams, that X and Y chromosome. 11 children in my family. Somewhere along that line, one of us had to embody the deferred dreams of the parents. I consider myself lucky number nine. So through my entire life, my earliest conscious thought was I was going to be an entertainer. Now, why would I think that? Because of how I was conceived. Well, you, it sounds as if you have both the perfect parts of your parents' 
theatrical desires in all in you. You have your your mother's desire to be a dancer, your father's desire to be a singer, and they blended beautifully into Andre. Well, let me tell you what I consider the truth. When I am dancing, I'm using my mother's feet, and when I am singing, I'm using my father's voice. That is what they bequeathed me. I'm not formally trained. I have three degrees. None of them is in the theater. And that is what I use as an explanation of my saying, I live an anointed life. Because I've never questioned what my purpose is. I've never questioned what my destiny is. I've simply put on the blinders and gone forward. So when you're performing, your parents are with you every night. Every, every, every moment. Every moment. And when, when this award season began, with the first announcement of my having been nominated for an Outer Critics Award, and the phone was jumping, jumping, beeping, and, you know, pinging and that sort of thing, <laughs> I shut it off for enough time for me to have a conversation with my parents, who are no longer living, but they make themselves available to me. And the conversation I had with them, it was brief, was that I have known all my life that I owe you a karmic, K-A-R-M-I-C, debt. And I've been paying it off in installments. But this smells so sweet that I might be able to pay it off in full. <laughs> you, might have, you might make good? Yeah, I might make good. <laughs> and what followed was hot tears. And then I knew I could turn the phone back on. <laughs> wow. You mentioned a moment ago having blinders, right, that just pushed you forward in your career. Did those same blinders... Cause You've had a wonderful career, but there have been there have been times where things didn't go probably as planned, right? Oh, and and it's the nature of being an actor. Yeah. And did those blinders help in those moments where things seemed tough, or why isn't this show working, or whatever it is? The blinders help, yes. Yeah. Performers are like horses, not only because we are trained to be thoroughbreds, yes, <laughs> but also because we have big eyes. And that's why blinders are put on horses, so that they follow the path most necessary. So when I say I put on the blinders, what I'm saying is I have found a way to turn into a mantra for my life the admonitions that all parents give their children, which is not all that glitters is gold. Not every shut eye is asleep. Not every goodbye is gone. Pursue only those blessings that have your name on it. It's the hardest thing we can do because there's so, so many pretty things out here and we get distracted. I don't know how you know which blessings are for you. Uh, here we go. <laughs> You're a professional, aren't you? You know, you know exactly the questions to ask to get the answers that I want to share. So, Did you guys share notes before this? No, 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 no. So here's, here's the algorithm, if you will. The first part of the equation is you must understand even if you don't believe it you must understand and yes you can understand that you don't you can understand things that you don't believe and you definitely can believe things that you don't understand <laughs> but you must understand that the universe recreates itself for our pleasure envision it looking like a cornucopia, a horn of plenty, turned 
upside down so that it's spilling its abundance constantly, incessantly, all the time, forever, eternally. Abundance is spilling out of this corn of Ucopia. That's the danger of the distraction because there's so much coming at you. Now here's the lesson. That abundance we call blessings. Every blessing is inscribed with a name. Do not pursue the blessing that is not inscribed with your name. If, if a blessing comes out and Jamie is on it, I got to look the other way <laughs> until the blessing comes out that has Andre on it. Then put on the blinders and follow that where it leads you. So that's really a lesson in patience. Patience. Is it's that what you said? seven years that you waited. Yeah. Patience. <laughs> yeah. Perseverance. Yeah. Tenacity. Yeah. Right. Long suffering. Silence. Measured movement. Here's, an, here's another cardinal mantra of, of my life. Slowly. Let me say that again, just in case there was some interference. Slowly is the fastest way to get to where you want to be. Amen. That's perfect. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> that's wisdom. Yeah. That's what that is. What do our parents yeah. say? Haste makes waste. Right. Yeah, but the way you said it's better. <laughs> <laughs> we, we prefer your line reading. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, right, it's, right, it's right. fascinating that, you know, you've pointed out that over the course of your career, you've played so many iconic characters who have this through line of being outsiders. And you've arrived at this moment, your 50th anniversary as, yeah, a, as yeah, a stage yeah. performer. And suddenly, the outsider is the storyteller. And I love your use of the word suddenly. <laughs> 50 years, suddenly. suddenly. <laughs> uh, but part of that, I think, might be uh, attributed to the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, to bring us back to earlier in the conversation, this project has been guided by two women. Yes. Anais Mitchell and Rachel Chavkin, right. the director. Um, and it's not very often that two women write and direct a Broadway musical. Right. Uh, and suddenly that's changing. Yes. To use the word suddenly. Right. Uh, again. And um, I have to think that that really means something. It does. And for those of your listeners who don't understand the significance of two women, it is nurturing. Mm. It is rearing with a sense of epic empathy. That's right. There we go again. I mean, th this has to be the first musical you've done on Broadway with a female director. Is that, is that right? Yes. On right? It's the first, yes, Broadway musical. It's the first Broadway entity that I've done with a woman at its helm, much less two women at the helm, which is why when I'm asked to speak about Aeneas Mitchell, I say, oh, you mean the oracle, <laughs> the prophetess? Right. right. And when I'm asked to speak about Rachel Chafkin, I say, oh, you mean the auteur, Chafkin the Great? Uh, <laughs> that's so true. It's High so true. praise. It's yeah, so true. yeah, yeah, yeah. High praise for high work. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. They're geniuses. Um, and you know, you just mentioned that people might not appreciate what that means right. in, the, in the process, the creative right. process. Right. It makes me think, in a way, about The Wiz. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, going back to 1974, um, the audiences today, young people today in particular, might not appreciate what that show meant at the time, and still means today, yep. very clearly. I'm wondering if uh, you could share with us a little bit about your experience in the original company of The Wiz and, and how that was a transformative moment for Broadway. Thank you. The Wiz was a game changer. Yeah. At the same time, The Wiz has not been allowed to earn its rightful place in the canon 
of musical literature. I think, I feel, I know in my heart, it has to do with the remnant, the residue of institutionalized racism on the great white way. Now, I want you to be my witnesses. I'm not pointing fingers here, right? I am evaluating a situation. The whiz single-handedly changed the terrain of Broadway, which black audiences have for ever considered an inhospitable terrain. Still, it's hard to get African-Americans to spend their money on a Broadway show unless it is marketed specifically and in a bespoke manner to African-Americans. For example, August Wilson. For example, Ain't Too Proud. For example, The Wiz. The Wiz was greeted in New York with very chilling critiques. January 5th was the opening day, 1975. You can imagine that we were joyful. <laughs> we had finally made it from a three-city pre-Broadway tour, and we were opening on Broadway. The producer gave us opening night gifts, as all producers must do. <laughs> One of the gifts was the posting of the closing notice. Oh, my God. Yes. OMG. On opening night. Now, the producer was doing what he had to do because if the show had closed precipitously he would have been owing everybody money that he didn't have so you post the notice so that if the show closes the escrow account takes care of whatever is owed right Ken Harper who was the producer at the time was smart enough, but it was, I think, ultimately a misfortune. But he sold his rights to the show to 20th Century Fox so that he would have enough money to make one of the first live-action commercials. It was that commercial that went into the homes of African Americans and grabbed them and said, Get your black asses off those couches and come and see yourself reflected on Broadway. They came, and that's what turned the tide. That live-action commercial and word of mouth. I did not know that about the commercial. Yeah. That it was that it had that, because that was an early... Commercial, yeah. right? That was they, they weren't for doing Broadway. It. For right. Broadway, that was yes, that's what I'm had right. done one. You guys did one. Yeah, Ken Hopper it, knew. So it was Toto jumping out of the, out of the, off the stage into the little boy's lap. That, yeah, exactly. That, did it. that kind of thing. More than that, no. I mean, more than that. And I'm not trying to take any way anything away from Toto. <laughs> <laughs> more than that, it was 15-year-old Stephanie Mills yeah. discovered singing in a choir, a church choir in Brooklyn, singing her heart out, When I Think of Home. When I think of home, I think of a place where there's love overflowing. I wish I was home, I wish I was back there with the things I've been knowing when that makes the tall grass bend into leaning. Suddenly the raindrops that fall 
not only does that tear at the strings of your heart, but out of that, the African-American TV viewer who were, all, who were turning into couch potatoes extrapolated from that our long history of thinking of home. Now, I hope I don't have to explain that. No, you don't. No. <laughs> That's what drew the black audience to Broadway. That's what turned the tide. And six months later, we were collecting seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical. Best Musical. Could you feel that shift in the audience? Uh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. It's powerful. It's very powerful. Your company, every single person was perfection. From you to Stephanie Mills to Dee Dee Bridgewater, every, everyone, it could not have been more perfectly cast. And I think that that, that album is certainly seared in many people's memories, yes, right? Yes, it the is. Perfect, it's sort of the perfect thing, right? <laughs> and, and, and if you look at photographs, I, I was fortunate enough to see it when I was young, but if you, look at fortune, if you look at photographs, if you weren't old enough, you can see what the production was, right? Yes. You, you, you get a sense of it. And yet, there haven't been that many successful productions since the original. The film was not a success. What is it about that original production? It, 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 did that sort of ruin it for everybody else? <laughs> no. You, I don't mean to be flippant. No, I'm, no, no. I know. I know. I understand. I did not receive it as flippant. But you asked the question and you answered it. Now, I am not dissing anyone. However, when the film was made, it did not take the important lessons from what the Broadway show had taught into its purview. Let me give you one of many examples, but I don't, I'm not gonna be a hammer today, so I'm not gonna beat this nail too much. <laughs> but I wanna give you one example. Sidney Lumet directed the film. Sidney Lumet, great film director, had never directed a musical before, okay? Diana Ross played Dorothy. I love me some Diana Ross. <laughs> As a matter of fact, she's part of the inspiration in Hermes. We can get to that later. <laughs> We will. Don't think I Jamie's won't. <laughs> but Dorothy is not a 24-year-old school teacher who has problems finding a boyfriend. Dorothy is a 12-year-old girl from a rural environment who gets precipitously placed in a land of make-believe where anything she dreams comes true. And what happens there? She learns the most important lesson of anyone's life. There's no place like home. Point number three, in the film, and I'm not gonna belabor this because I don't want to be morbid, but in the film, Oz, which is supposed to be a land of fantasy, I can hardly say it, was the Twin Towers. Land of fantasy? They're gone, which is proof the Twin Towers did not constitute a land of fantasy. And we know why they're gone. That's why I don't want to belabor the point. Right? I could go on. I'm not going to go on. But the point I'm simply making is once the film was made, which can play to millions of people, it would take the Broadway musical countless years to play to the same number of people that one film can play to, it killed us. 
we didn't even exist in the cultural mind of the black people who were now saying the word, the whiz. They were saying, oh yeah, Michael Jackson, Diana Ross. No, Andre DeShields, Stephanie Mills, Hinton Battle, Tiger Haynes, Ted Ross, Mabel King, Clarice Taylor, Dee Dee Bridgewater. I'm done. So how this musical does live in the hearts of yeah. those you know who have yeah. grown up with it and have right. admired it and right exactly for whom it meant so much and continues to and it so still much. does and right. people people I run into people and they say Mr. Wiz and then they want to apologize for dating me I said no <laughs> if I do nothing else in my life I created the role of Mr. Wiz and at the time that I did it I was. If I, my heart had stopped beating, I, was, I would have died happy. I often wonder that. You know, yeah. Sometimes if actors who are so strongly associated with a particular role, they yeah. ever come to resent it. or if No, 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 you no, no. You have to understand. I mean, I'm, I'm marking my 50th year as a performer because I'm also marking my 73rd year on the earth plane. So you have to understand that I'm what they used to call a race man. When I was reared, we were taught that everything we did, everything we said, how we dressed, whatever we did publicly was representing the race. And I still carry that seed. So I want to I carry it in different ways now. For instance, I, I like to do projects that I know will benefit from my participation because then it opens doors for other men with feathers on their feet. Are you getting the metaphor now? <laughs> I believe we are. Right. Is that also part of the reason why you continue to teach throughout your career? Because you have taught throughout your entire yes, career, yes, I have. correct? Yes, I have. And that's a similar, that's a similar yeah. motivation, correct? It's, yes, that's one, yes. That is one of the motiv motivations. Another motivation is because I don't want people to forget how important beauty is in living a long, happy life. Well, you actually said in uh -oh. the New York Times recently, uh -oh. beauty is part of living a long and happy life. There you oh. go. <laughs> Just said those words. I quoted, my, I cannibalized myself. <laughs> no, because I think it's how you live your life. I don't think yeah. you're, I think, I don't think, yes, you're quoting yourself, but I think you're also just saying what it is you believe in and, right. and how, you, how you wake up every day and approach the day. That is true. That is true. May I? You may. Because you've, you've, you've given me another opportunity. <laughs> How does one wake up and approach the day? Now, I think I've said often enough that people believe me. I live my life by mantras, by devotionals. Everyone gets up whenever the individual gets up. More often than not, it's in the morning. And the first place we visit, I would think, is the bathroom, right? To take care of personal needs. And most likely in every bathroom, there's a mirror over the sink. So what am I saying? That's the first person you meet every day 
when you wake up. The person reflected in your bathroom mirror. Now, that's where you get your first opportunity to practice kindness, empathy, compassion. So I have on my mirror a Chinese proverb. I've now memorized it. But just in case, it's on the mirror. You know, if I have a guest stove and they use the bathroom, I want them to see it. And here it is. Now remember, I've gotten up, I'm looking at the person reflected in the mirror, and I'm saying to that person, I will always love you. I will never forsake you. I will do with you what the spring does to the cherry tree. Okay? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Some deep stuff. I, what, what does that mean to you? Well, what does the spring do to the cherry tree? It blossoms. Yeah. Blossom. And right now, and because of Anais Mitchell, because of Rachel Chafkin, because of Dale Franzen, because of Mara Isaacs, and the entire Hades Town family. But I wanted to mention those names because they are the nurturing women. The roots. The roots and the branches. Because of that and them, I, f- I feel like a flower in a well-tended garden. So my only responsibility is to bloom. And bloom you do. Yes, I <laughs> did. Try take the words right out of my mouth, Jamie. I do that a lot. Yes. Okay. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I want to wrap this up because I want you to get home and rest because tomorrow's your day off. But I can't let the Diana Ross thing go because no. I am a huge. You have he's a huge you know, Diana Ross. Yeah, but I put that chum on the hook, and he what? I oh. I did. <laughs> so how does Miss Ross figure into all of this? Okay. Um, first of all, the characters that you meet in Hades Town have become friends to the audience. So they have no problem if they encounter us on the street coming right up to us and ask questions. Because just to reference that uh, statement I made about theater being maybe the final sanctuary for communion and worship, I have always understood the responsibility of the audience in the way that I'm about to explain it. But in very few instances have I been, has there been evidence of it. But now Town confirms what I have been thinking. Audiences come to the theater to have questions answered, to have problems solved to have crises resolved, to have burdens lifted, to have yokes broken. Yes, to be entertained, but we know that. But now I'm, I'm finishing the algorithm. I'm finishing the equation. And I believe that's why people come up to us on the street because they, they are having a conversation and I'm not being blasphemous. They're having a conversation with a God. And they think they can get an answer. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. The God I play is Hermes. We've already decided that some of the facets of Hermes come from characters that I have created in other productions. But if you want to know, if you want to know what the seed of the seed of Hermes is, it's one part Charles Lawton 
<laughs> from witness for the prosecution. <laughs> it's a Billy Wilder film that stars, stars Lawton, Tyrone Power, and the great, help me out here. Marlena Dietrich? Marlena Dietrich. <laughs> it's a great film. Yes. It's a black and white film noir. And it drips, it exudes performative precision. Hermes is precise, if nothing else. Now, Hermes is also a glittering object. And it's not without its purpose. He glitters because he needs your undivided attention. So what he's doing with his glitter is mesmerizing you, hypnotizing you, saying, look at me, listen to me. I am the heart of the experience, the journey you are about to take. You will lose your way if you lose touch with me. Now, who does that better than the Supremes and then Diana Ross and the Supremes and then Diana Ross? <laughs> who does it better? No one. So I'm offering you, Hermes is offering you, one half Charles Lawton, one half Diana Ross. And that's why he is such an incredible character and so fun to watch I agree <laughs> and, and so beautifully played by you thank yes, you yes. well yeah I mean we, we always wrap up by asking each guest the same question uh -oh. and it's been so fun <laughs> should I be scared to, no it's no, not a gotcha not at all, question, not at all. <laughs> uh, no what we love to know is is there a, a particular early experience you had in your life whether it was attending a certain show or seeing a certain film that hooked you and got you you know into this industry. Yes. Now, I've already told you the story of mom and dad and their deferred dreams coming together in the conception of Andre. Here's another algorithm for you, another equation. You know, the universe loves trinity, things that happen in three. You had asked earlier, how do you know you know when the universe conspires to help you. Well, how do you know that? Look for the Trinity. Part one, the dream. We know what that is. Well, we've already discussed the dream came from my, my parents. But when you ask someone in the theater, how are you? The answer is, live in the dream. So that's part one. Part two of the Trinity is the answer to the question you just asked, epiphany. You need to have some spiritual experience that says to you, hey, look up. As Hermes says to Orpheus, look up. This sign, this omen is for you. For me, that was the film Cabin in the Sky directed by Vincent Minnelli, the father of Liza Minnelli, the husband of Judy Garland. It starred probably every world-class black entertainer of the time, Lena Horne, Ethel Waters, Eddie Rochester Anderson, Louis Armstrong, and on. There was a character called Domino Johnson might have been Domino Jackson, but this character, who was played by John Bubbles Sublette. Bubbles was uh, one part of a vaudeville team called Buck and Bubbles. His entrance into the film is through swinging doors into a tavern. He's dressed resplendently in white from head to toe, bowler, three-piece suit, watch fog, cane, spats, and he does this 
jitterbug with Ethel Waters, and then he dances off up a flight of stairs into what I thought was an annunciation into, <laughs> into a fold of clouds. <laughs> I'm nine years old. I'm sitting in a movie house in Baltimore, Maryland, the Royal, in the dark sanctuary, as we've been talking about. And the small voice that lives in the gut of every individual and if you put on the blinders and shut out the distractions, you will hear the small voice that never shouts, but only tells the truth. And at that moment, when I saw Bubbles do that dance, the small voice said, Andre, that's what you're going to do. Wow. Part two of the Trinity. Part three of the Trinity is somebody's got to pay you to do it. <laughs> I. <laughs> well, on that note, oh my gosh, amazing. Well, thank you so, so much for coming down on a Sunday evening after eight performances this week and sitting down with us, uh, being so generous with your time. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Thank you. As I walk down the street, seems everyone I meet gives me a friendly hello. I guess I'm just a lucky so-and-so. Rob here with You May Be Wondering. We just finished our chat with theatrical legend Andre DeShields, who plays the Greek god Hermes in the smash hit musical Hadestown on Broadway. Hadestown gorgeously intertwines two mythic tales, that of the young dreamers Orpheus and Eurydice, and that of King Hades and his wife Persephone, into a hell-raising journey to the underworld and back. Creators Aeneas Mitchell and Rachel Chavkin added yet another element of Greek mythology with the interpolation of Hermes, messenger of the gods, as the narrator of the musical. You may be wondering, what are some other musicals that have used Greek and Roman mythology as inspiration? Well, you need not look very far to find an example. In fact, the current hit revival of My Fair Lady is itself a musical adaptation of George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion, which was based on the ancient Greek myth of Pygmalion, a sculptor who sculpts his idea of the perfect woman out of ivory and proceeds to fall in love with her before the goddess Aphrodite brings the sculpture to life. Believe it or not, Lerner and Lowe weren't the first ones to take a musical stab at Pygmalion. 1943's One Touch of Venus by Kurt Weill and Ogden Nash is a loose spoof of the Pygmalion myth in which a statue of the goddess Venus comes to life and falls in love with a hapless barber. Another example from the Golden Age is My Jupiter, a 1942 Rodgers and Hart musical, their last and most commercially successful as a team, which involves a conflict between the Greek gods and Amazonian warriors, including such characters as Queen Hippolyta, Hercules, Theseus, and Antiope. This was their follow-up to The Boys from Syracuse, an adaptation of Shakespeare's The Comedy of Errors, which itself is based on an ancient Roman play. Of course, the erudite composer and lyricist Stephen Sondheim turned to the Greeks and the Romans twice for inspiration, in two separate collaborations with Bert Shevelov. First was 1962's A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which is inspired by three ancient Roman farces. The best example, though, is 1974's The Frogs, which is an adaptation of the ancient Greek comedy by Aristophanes that tells the story of the Greek god Dionysus, who goes to the underworld to retrieve his favorite playwright. A revised version in 2004, both starring and rewritten by Nathan Lane, leans even heavier on Greek mythology, involving Charon, the ferryman of the River Styx, as a character, as well as allusion to the Cretan princess Ariadne and a flashy musical comedy number for Pluto, the later name given to Hades as God of the Underworld. The 2011 musical Lysistrata Jones is a musical comedy adaptation of Aristophanes' comedy Lysistrata, in which Athenian women withhold sex from their husbands until they agree to end the Peloponnesian War. In this modern version, set at the fictional Athens University, cheerleaders stop having sex with their basketball player boyfriends until the players end their pathetic losing streak. And of course, both Hades and Hermes will be doing double duty come the end of the summer, when Disney teams with the public theater to present a public work stage version of the 1997 animated musical Hercules at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park, a story lifted directly from Greek mythology. But with no offense to Paul Schaefer, who voiced Hermes in the film, and whoever might play the part in the park, to me, there is only really one Hermes, and that's Andre de Shields. J. 
Jamie here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can hear us anytime on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcast. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC. And thank you to Orso Restaurant, Sean, the incredible staff, and Joe Allen himself for being so great to host us here tonight. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. Find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid. And on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday. And when the day is through, each night I hurry to a home where love waits unknown. I guess I'm just a lucky so-and-so. I'm just a lucky so-and-so I guess he's just a lucky so-and-so I guess I'm just a lucky so-and-so End of lesson Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.